Hello friends and welcome to Zippy the Wonder Snail, two Christian guys discussing the news and culture that matter to you. Hey Jason. How you doing Tim? I'm doing great and I am glad that we are back in the hot seat ready to tackle a whole new batch of the things that matter to our listeners and we're so glad that you are here with us today. Today we're going to start with a musical segment about the brand new album from Coldplay. That's right. It's called Music of the Spheres. Um, and I was able to listen to it just recently. Uh, and I liked it a lot. I'm a notorious Coldplay hater, so I was a bit surprised. So tell me your thoughts on it, Tim, and then I'll, I'll riff on some more. I, I liked it. Uh, I don't know that I liked it as much as I liked some of their maybe middle-of-career albums. You and I were talking about Viva La Vida and X and Y. Those are probably my two favorites. But I, I do like it, and I like the fact that it felt very cohesive. Oftentimes, it seems like albums feel sort of scattershot, and I appreciate that listening to it as a whole, this exploration of of space that they were trying to achieve, you felt like you were going on a journey throughout it. In some ways, I think actually for me, the, the highlight of the album was the very final track, Coloturia, because it felt maybe a little bit more like classic Coldplay to me than much of it. And I also like the fact that they, they felt like they had permission just to go for a really long track there. It doesn't feel like it's made to be a single. It's very much not made to be a single. And uh, as I understand it, Max Martin, who produced the album, wasn't as involved in that one. So I, I think that one really struck me. I, I liked it a, a great deal. You and I talked before the show, and we probably should talk some more about Let Somebody Go, the the duet between Coldplay and Selena Gomez. That That's a, a really nice track. And other than the fact that it has an F-bomb in it that causes this to be, I believe, I think Coldplay's very first album with an explicit label, other than that, I think Pride, The People of the Pride is a pretty interesting track, too. So that's sort of uh, my quick survey. But overall, I like the thematic coherence of it. it. It does have a familiarity for anyone that loves Coldplay, and yet it, it doesn't feel exactly like Coldplay at the same time. And I guess that's good. They're, they're staying fresh. I like that. I, I liked the things that you liked. I liked Coletaria, the, the last track there, probably pronouncing it wrong. Um, and I liked it for the same reason. And I, I think in this sense, this album is a concept album, uh, a lot like the progressive rock of the early 70s and the mid 70s, where you'd have this whole album that was on one theme and it was explicitly not aimed at hitting the radio and becoming popular it was for it was for the niche listeners and and in a way this album does that especially with the, the inter- instrumental moves and the uh, the the homage to electronic dance music but on the other hand the the popular songs the the songs with words in them as it were that's more uh, of a gesture toward mainstream pop um and that is going to get them on the radio and it is pleasant to listen to uh you brought up max martin i didn't know that max martin had produced it but he is the mastermind behind a lot of the early 21st century pop everybody from britney spears to christina aguilera to, to the backstreet boys to everybody uh justin timberlake uh so i love that pop aspect of it i love the concept album aspect of it i love the duet with selena gomez it's gorgeous i love the final track for the same reasons that final track it reminds me what it sounds like to me 
it it gave me a little bit of an homage to the Beatles. I thought it had a Beatles feel there at the very end of it. A um, little sadness tucked in there, yes. um, and that was pretty. That I I really I'm gonna listen to the album again after we're done with this podcast. So I liked it enough uh, that I want to go back through it again. Um, and like I said, I'm a n- notorious Coldplay hater. I just listened to Parachute the other day, and I hated it as much as I hated it at the original uh, at the outset of that album, year 2000. So, uh, but uh, this is this is good. I really liked it. I know the listeners are gonna like it, especially if they're already Coldplay fans. Uh, you could do work. You could do a lot worse. Uh, and good for them. Getting back, getting back into the conversation, getting back into the mainstream. Uh, maybe simplify, simplifying things a bit, even as they're reaching out and doing concept things. Cool thing, you know. Uh, a couple episodes back, we talked about John Mayer returning to form. Maybe in a certain way, even though they're stretching themselves, this is a return to form. So excited for them, listeners. I think would like it, um, and I liked it a lot. So yeah, I totally agree. It's funny because I, I said earlier, I feel like it's maybe a little bit less Coldplay-ish in some ways, and yet an album that is very coherent and. I think has a very clear sense of what it wants to be is also in some sense classic Coldplay. Coldplay seems to have had a a very assured approach, maybe a little less so in recent times as I think they maybe stumbled a little. You and I were talking about how for a while it seemed like Coldplay was sort of the heir apparent to U2. People were talking about here's the next U2, that sort of thing. And they've had incredible success, but they haven't become the next U2. And I, I wonder if maybe somewhere in there trying to hold on to that mantle. Ironically, that arose during the era of like Viva La Vida, which refers to being locked out of a kingdom. Uh, it, it, it's kind of funny. Maybe that was um, somewhat uh, subliminal there. I don't, I don't know. But maybe they're a little bit more assured at who they are. And Coldplay, clearly one of the most successful bands of, of recent memory. They don't really need to try to become the next U2. They they simply can be Coldplay, and, and that then perhaps even gives them freedom to be Coldplay, and yet also engage in some of the popish themes that you referred to here. Um, I, I like that they can allow Martin to pull them a little bit in the pop direction, and yet it was still very identifiably Coldplay. And part of that is just Chris Martin's very distinctive voice and his falsetto. I mean. It, Coldplay and, and Martin himself seem almost inseparable. Yeah, that's right. So I, I do like that. And, and I love I love when someone does an actual concept album. I don't think there are enough of those out there. there there's a little bit in some of the, the instrumental pieces in this that actually makes me think of it, it, what, in my mind, is the greatest concept album of all time, which would be the uh, Moody Blues uh, Days of Future Past. Um, to me, that's just the perfect concept album. But at the same time, I don't want to make too strong a comparison because I don't think this is a perfect album. But there were little spots where it, it felt like it was touching on some of those same ethereal themes. And I do appreciate the cohesiveness. I like, even though there are guests on here that are collaborating, it doesn't feel like that derails it from where it's going, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think, and this is something the band actually said, that People of the Pride was inspired to some extent by Muse, and it has a very similar sound to something like um, The Uprising without without going completely there. It still feels like Coldplay. So just a lot of interesting texture in it. Um, it it's nice to see Coldplay going. 
on and, and doing interesting things. I wanted to say another quick thing about uh, sort of evokes a, a very small, they had a one one hit wonder kind of a thing in the 80s. Uh, they were called the Dream Academy and they had a song called Life in a Northern Town. And as I listened to certain aspects of Coldplay, this album, it reminded me of the Dream Academy and Life in a Northern Town. So we're going to leave uh, the YouTube clip of Life in a Northern Town in the show notes, and then you could sort of compare, uh, see what you think, Coldplay fans. Uh, but it, w- it was a pleasant memory for me because I love that song. Uh, I, lo- I love the rebooted version of that song. Um, and, you know, I listened to a whole Coldplay album and it made me happy. So that's really weird for me, and I'm still adjusting to that. So... <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was a really pleasant album to listen to, and I I love your thoughts on that. And I will um, listen to those things that you referred to uh, with Moody Blues. What do you call it? Days of Future Past was that? Y- one? Yes, yeah. If you, if you haven't listened to that album, to me that is just the perfect concept album. It, it's truly beautiful. I, I Jason, I think if you listen to it, there's just no way you're not going to absolutely love that album. It, I love it so much. I just used a double negative. I mean, it's it's really. Really a great album. <laughs> he majored in English and he's falling apart, folks. That's what's happening. Yeah, it's making me kind of moody and blue. <laughs> well, well, speaking of albums to listen to, too, Jason, you really need to check out Coldplay's Ghost Stories um, at some point. It's another great album. And and I, I think it shows a very mature Coldplay that you don't necessarily see in, like, Parachutes, for example. Okay, yes, our friends at Spotify have that marked out as coming out in 2014. Uh, so I will give that a listen. If you missed that Moody Blues album, check that out first. I'll put it on on easily my top 10 list of all-time greatest albums. Wow, okay. Maybe we'll do a segment in the future about our favorite albums of all time, and that will be fun. That would be great. Well, Monday was the second major Apple presentation of the fall, and after I had a chance to watch it, I I wrote Jason and said, I know it's going to be overwhelming, but I just have to geek out for a little while on Zippy because this is just too much to take in and not not talk about it. It was a really amazing presentation, and I will say this, for those of you who have not ever actually gone on Apple's website after they do a big product announcement, and gone and watched one of their presentations, you're missing out. Their, their production value has always been amazing. I, I've always said to, to people, if they want to learn how to present things better, they should watch how Apple does it. And perhaps the, the perfect example of that, you know, peak Apple is the unveiling of the iPhone by Steve Jobs back in 2007. An interesting thing with the, the pandemic has been that Apple hasn't been doing in-person product announcements. They've been doing these live-streamed ones, and not just streaming the live event, but something made for live stream. And it's like this hour-long tour de force introducing a product that I think even if you don't have the slightest idea about technology, you get excited about. And yet, in the midst of this, the actual stuff they announced is just so amazing. I wrote a piece on Open for Business last week talking about... Apple's M1 processor that they unveiled at one of these events last fall and is the underlying uh, chip, the the brains of most of their new computers they've introduced up until this week. It's it's really incredible. And if you're not a a geek and you're not into constantly looking at all the ways that technology works in in the most basic terms of, of what we're watching here, for the first time in probably 
oh, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, we're seeing someone come out intentionally moving away from Intel processors and Intel-compatible processors like you have in Windows PCs, and that have been in Macs for the last 15 years, create their own processors and create something better than Intel. And and so the M1 processor that came out last year is in many ways as fast as the best that Intel and AMD have to offer. And you can get it, for example, in the 699 Mac Mini that often goes on sale for under $600, which is incredible. And so I wrote about that, about how the last year, one of the best computers you can buy, period, regardless of cost, has been often selling for under 600 It's sort of inconceivable, and it's it's one of the first times that's happened in the history of computers. This week, though, what they did is they basically proved to the world they, they could do that once, and then some people said, well, okay, so they came out with something, and it's a little better than Intel. At the price range, they, they made laptops, for example, that can have 17-plus hours of battery life and still perform at a level where you can do high-definition video editing without any issue. But then this week, they ratcheted that up. And so the computers they unveiled this week are higher-end computers than, than the M1 ones. They're the M1 Pro and Max-based computers. And here's what's amazing about that. If you look at the preliminary data we're getting about these computers, it appears that they've created computers that started at about $2,000, which is a lot of money, admittedly. But computers that are starting at around $2,000 that compare favorably to ten dollars and $20,000 computers. And, and yes, those still do exist. Most people don't need them, but there is that out there for people that do heavy video editing and people who are orchestrating music albums like like the Coldplay album we just talked about, things like that where you're you're doing really processor-intensive stuff. And, of course, video gamers as well. They they go for the high-end systems. This These systems are amazing. They have battery life that is out of this world for uh, something as powerful as it is. You're talking about something under 5 pounds that can drive three 8K displays at the same time, something that can actually create 3D sound stages in real time. It's just really amazing. And so I think it's something to watch. And we're the thing I've been saying over this last year is I believe that we're seeing a transition where this technology that um, has been sort of stagnant, really. We haven't had huge breakthroughs in a long time in the computing world. This is something really different because you're seeing a mix of processor power and battery life coming together that's radically improved. And then in the midst of that, Apple is pushing their machine learning coprocessor that can do all kinds of things like facial tracking so that you can have titles that follow a person moving across stage or, or things like that that previously was the domain primarily of of Hollywood and places with massive budgets. So even the stuff that costs a lot of money, relatively speaking, doesn't cost much for what it's doing. And that means that more people are going to have access to more technology that does amazing things. And and that in itself is amazing for what it's going to do in the future, I think. Yeah. And hopefully, like you're saying, cost $2,000 now, but as things advance, hopefully those prices will drop and then more more and more powerful computers are in, in the hands of the ordinary people. So, And, and that's exactly with this M1, that 699, uh, it can run a single task as fast as these really high-end computers. So the average person, if they can afford 699 on a computer that will probably last them five, six years, seven years, eight years maybe, can do stuff that previously was the domain of like two and three thousand dollar computers. Right. Um, it, it'll be it'll be great to see where it goes. And uh, I don't have anything to add in terms of the geekery here, but it's fascinating how how our world advances and how uh, we're able to do things with our computers that were un- unimaginable, you know, 
10, 15 years ago uh, and more. So Absolutely. thank you for uh, sharing that with us. Oh, yeah, yeah definitely. And, and it, it kind of provides a segue into what we wanted to talk about as the other half of our tech segment today. Um, one thing I love about Apple and one reason I'm so excited that they're successful at some of this stuff is Apple has been a really big advocate for privacy of information. And uh, so Jason and I had been talking, we wanted to discuss Dennis E. Powell's piece on Open for Business from the other week talking about computer privacy. And I, I think it's kind of eye-opening when you really look at what's going on in the computer world today and how much surveillance power these companies have. Yeah, that's right. Um, and they're, they're just taking our information without our consent. I mean, I think that's the part that struck me about what Danis wrote there is that at no point uh, did we give our consent to be tracked by all these different um, tracking programs and things that were added on. And, and he talked about various tools that you can use to find out who is tracking you um, and what they're trying to do with your data and who they're trying to sell it to. Um, and it was horrifying. Now, I told you off the air, I didn't know if I had the guts to actually make the changes uh, that Dennis was advocating there, but it'll scare you a little bit to know, you know, maybe there's a reason why we're getting all these uh, all these sales calls that seem to come from nowhere. It's because somebody got your data when they tracked you on a website kind of a thing. That's absolutely what they do, and the, the power they have to do it is is stunning today and, and really no one is better at it than google and that's where it often makes me cringe that almost everyone does all their web searching on google now they're using google-based phones on android and they're getting their email on google maybe they're using their google tv to watch television basically you're inviting google to be in every part of your life and perhaps more than any other tech company that's frightening to me a number of years ago the the then chairman of google eric schmidt was asked how people should avoid having stuff put into Google's database they didn't want out there because not everyone wants everything about themselves publicly exposed. And he said, if you don't want it, you shouldn't do it. And maybe in a moral sense, that, that's true. I mean, there there is a sense in which it, it's eye-opening to be reminded we're always going to have to account for our actions. And yet at the same time, I don't think I want Google to be the one that brings the accounting. Um, Google has motivations that aren't pure and they're not trying to make us more godly. Google's just trying to figure out how to sell us and and not sell to us. I, I use those words very intentionally. They're trying to sell us. If you think about it, most of what Google does is free, including most of the software that, that powers an Android phone. They've released it for free. Well, why do they do that? They don't do it because they're super virtuous. They do that because they know if you're using Google products and services, they can track you and see what you do. And then they sell that to advertisers. And that's where Google makes its money. It's not a search engine. It's not an operating system company. It's an advertising company. Right. Like Dennis said, if you get something for free, you're the product. So that's something that we need to be aware of. Absolutely. Uh, and it, and if we're not, again, I'll, I'll hammer this point again. If we're not giving consent to be tracked, then uh, then this needs to be looked at at various levels of government, including the federal government. Because if you're not giving consent, then it's being stolen from you. Which which there's definite truth to, although here's here's the challenge, and I think this is where we need serious change in how we, we handle some of this stuff. Um, a lot of times you are giving consent. You know, all those times that you go to a website and it says, 
check the box to accept the terms and conditions and no one ever reads the terms and conditions. Yeah. Quite, quite frequently that's giving consent. Now you might argue it's not any kind of informed consent. It's not a consent that's actually trying to bring people to understand what they're consenting to. But we do it over and over again, and Google's a great example of this. They often extract consent out of us because we want to do something. And when we want to do something, we don't want to bother to read fine print, and then we're just giving them more permission to spy on us. I can I can tell the listeners that when I read um, a user license agreement from our friends at Apple, I read the entire thing. So you can read it. You can uh, inform yourself about what you're consenting to. But again, like you pointed out earlier, I'm happier with Apple's privacy uh, attitude or their attitudes towards privacy uh, more than I am about Google and some of the other ones. So, uh, but I do like to read those. I do try to read those as much as possible. It's always a good idea. And uh, being aware, I think to me, it's like some of the revelations we've had recently about what Facebook does. None of that's really surprised me. And I think if we're not surprised and we approach it carefully, it can be used well. So I don't have any qualms about being on Facebook, but I'm selective on what I give to Facebook because I know what they're doing with it. And I, I know that they're not a good company. And likewise on Google, I I use Google at times, certain services, but I, I make an effort to use other services. Dennis mentioned some that are really good choices. Uh, for example, DuckDuckGo is a, a privacy-oriented search engine. Uh, Brave, uh, which makes an alternative version of Chrome that's uh, very much like Google's Chrome, but it's a more privacy-secure browser, has a, a new search engine as well. Firefox has always been a really good choice for those who, who want to, to browse the web without giving Google even more power. Because every time we use Chrome, which Google is developing, we're actually giving Google more power over how information is exchanged on the internet, which even if it seems innocent now, is just playing into their hand. So those are things that you can do. Uh, Dennis has some great suggestions there. And like you said, Jason, we're, you know, you and I are both Apple fans. Um, and, and not to sound like an Apple fanboy after I just went crazy for five minutes on how great their new computers are. But one of the things I love about Apple is that since Apple makes its money by selling hardware, and sometimes their hardware costs more to begin with, but the cost has to exist someplace. And, and Apple, I feel like, is a little bit more honest on where the cost is. It's up front. You 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 want an iPad? You're going to pay for an iPad. Uh, where Google can offer maybe something that's cheaper, but it's not really cheaper. You're you're paying in a different way. And so um, Apple's been very good at that. And one of the things they're doing that's going to benefit all of us through that is by pushing things like those machine learning coprocessors I talked about in their new computers from the M1 all the way up. They're doing that because they want to be able to offer the same things Google offers, like you know being able to search your photos and and find. Um, a particular person or a particular object. And everyone wants to do that, right? You want to find your picture of your grandma or your aunt or whatever. Yeah. You want to be able to do that quickly. And so that's one of the ways Google extracts consent from us. They say, well, sign up for Google Photos, sign this agreement, but look, you can find your pet bird really quickly. And people say, ooh, that's wonderful. And so they sign up and don't think about it. Well, Apple, by pushing machine learning on your individual device is trying to accomplish that same ability to search things and to to use your information well without giving it over to somebody else who is then going to turn it into a package to sell you. And, and so I, whether you go the more of the Linux and open source route that Dennis advocates or you, you use more Apple products, there, there are different things you can do. And there are things you can do even if you're a Windows PC user like use Firefox. Um, that are just well worth your time to think a little bit more about, are you really sure you want to sell the parts of yourself that you're selling? Right. 
all good things to think about, uh, whether uh, our options come from other companies or, or whether we talk about regulation in the future, but all good things to think about. I think we have a sponsor coming up, don't we, Tim? We do, and that sponsor is perfect for the segment we're talking about because it's faithtree.com weather, the greatest place on earth to go check your weather. You can go there anytime, day or night, see weather for any place in the world, hourly weather. You can see the 10-day forecast. You you can also have a little moment in the Bible with a scripture verse on the side that ties into whatever your current weather conditions are while even just checking the weather. But here's how it ties into what we've been talking about. Faithtree.com weather is never going to track you and use the places you look up weather on to try to sell you anything. You're never going to see tickets for for wherever you're planning to travel to next week because you happen to check the weather at at faithtree.com weather. We don't sell your information. And so if you're concerned about privacy and you're thinking, you know, the last time I went to one of the big weather sites, it seemed like the next five days, I, all I saw was information about uh, the locations I checked the weather on. That's a sign of what we've been talking about, about the invasive techniques of surveillance that these big tech companies are using. And Faithtree Weather is a way to be free from that. Check it out, faithtree.com slash weather. Anytime, day or night. You. So beautiful and lovely I wish you could see it all the way I do So pure and true And I've seen you in the sun Shining warm upon your skin Young feet wandering in the harbor there And every summer since Well, Jason, are you ready to talk about Deep Space Nine? Yes, I am. I'm, I'm a good Star Trek fan, but really in another way, I'm a bad Star Trek fan because I skip around all the shows and a lot of them, including Deep Space Nine, I've never even finished. So I just skip around and I watch different things. Uh, but I know also you're bad about watching shows, aren't you, Tim? Yeah, yeah, I, I really am. I, I, I am. <laughs> I told you about a a show that I looked into, and it's not new, but I happened upon this show called Broadchurch, uh, and I think it's wonderful. It ended in 2017. It's a limited series. Um, you're going to watch that, and I'm going to finish Deep Space Nine, and that is the lecture that we're going to deliver to each other in this brief segment, and maybe we'll talk about uh, Broadchurch in a future episode, and we could talk more deeply about Deep Space Nine in a future episode if I can ever finish it. I know the characters, I know basically what's going on, but uh, but I, I'm bad about watching things in order with the, the Star Trek. Oh, it's just such, it is the best Star Trek series. I'll, I'll say that time and again, underappreciated, so brilliant. Uh, yeah, neither of us are doing very good at getting through these series, but we, we need to watch them because right now we can't really talk about them very much. Yeah, we're we're not helping the list. They're like, oh, I want to talk about Broadchurch too, but Tim's never watched it, so we can't. So. <laughs> well, since we can't talk about that, we thought we'd talk about a totally non-controversial subject that will calm everybody's blood pressure, which is the minimum wage. Yeah, that's right. Just, just dive right in. We're you know, a little lighthearted subject for the end of the podcast, <laughs> or the middle. <laughs> 
Well, um, we started on this topic. We were actually doing show prep for this show. We weren't planning to cover minimum wage, and we just found ourselves in the midst of a minimum wage discussion. And so here we are. Something interesting that leads us into this discussion is this so-called great resignation happening right now. The All the places that can't hire enough workers, we're seeing something happening. And Jason, that brings us back to this age-old discussion, doesn't it, of the minimum wage and what people are willing to work for and can work for and should work for and, and such. Yeah, the, the one interesting thing about that is is we talked before the show about um, upward pressure on wages because people were not willing to work for substandard wages anymore. They're like, I'm not going to put forth that much effort for as little as you want to pay me. And I said, but there's more of a moral urgency to improve the situation between capital and labor. Maybe there is, from the invisible hand, as it were, some pressure going upward, but we can do better and we can create a wage floor. And then we started to talk about um, about uh, universal basic income, like our, our friend Andrew Yang, uh, who, is a, who is a candidate for president and also for mayor of New York City, has proposed like a freedom dividend, which is uh, a form of a UBI. Um, and I objected uh, to a UBI as, as a just wage precisely on the grounds that it's not a wage, because he says, We'll give it to everybody without exception, and then they can use that money however they want. But if they're not working for it, then it's not a wage. So I I agree. Uh, I will advocate for an increase in the minimum wage because, one, it's a wage, and two, it hasn't been altered in a good long time since the early 90s uh, the minimum wage was raised. Uh, And you do get some variance within the state uh, with state minimum wages, and that's that's not good enough. So I think we need we need federal intervention here, and it needs to be pretty darn high. And then I think that'll take some pressure off of uh, debates about um, remedial sort of social spending to help people, you know, um, anti-poverty efforts and so on and so forth. Well, you, you know, there there's a lot. It's funny we we tend to disagree on the minimum wage itself. I. I I'm not an advocate for increasing the minimum wage, and I want to talk about that before everyone's blood pressure goes up that does want it increased. We we disagree on that, and yet I, I think we agree on an awful lot. For example, Jason and I would both affirm the need to pay attention to human dignity in this discussion, and certainly as Christians, uh, we should care for the poor. So I, I'll never advocate, for example, that we should somehow extract unfairly work out of people or anything like that. For me, there's a couple of issues, and the one, I'm going to go backwards on this, but if you look at the economy today, you already mentioned, Jason, that there's upward pressure. We're seeing it. People are unwilling to work in certain jobs, at least, for certain amounts of money right now. Uh, For example, I heard earlier this discussion that MoDOT is having a hard time getting enough drivers for their snowplows because a bunch of people are quitting because they're, they're not being paid enough. They're being paid, I think, fifteen twenty five an hour or something like that. I drove by my local convenience store today. They're paying fourteen seventy five to work in the convenience store. And and absolutely nothing against the people that work in the convenience store, but when you're driving a machine that weighs a bunch of tons, speeding down a highway with a sharp blade on the front of it, uh, you know, I tend to think that those people should be getting paid more than fifteen twenty five an hour. And so apparently the people doing it agree. They're quitting. They're not willing to do that job for that amount of money. And this is where I wonder, do we really need 
to have the government in, intervene because whatever the bureaucrats in Washington decide, this is the the number that's going to provide it for human dignity and, and basic needs and what, whatever else. It, it's an inefficient way to do it because it may be too high, it may be too low, and we're busy debating all that when we're seeing people basically doing it on their own. And I, I don't necessarily know where all these people are going, but what we're certainly seeing is that a lot of companies are responding pretty quickly here and suddenly offering significant wage increases because their choice is pay more or you can't have the workers that you need. And, and so the market's doing what advocates for the free market have always said, which is it's going to respond to such pressures. It may not be perfect, but I tend to think it actually seems to be working. And and we're seeing that perhaps in part, I think, through the emergence of the gig economy as well, where, where people can kind of dictate their own terms quite a bit more if they want to. So there's that. I do find myself at sympathy with what you're saying in your critique of Andrew Yang in that it does seem like it's missing out on some of the dignity of work by just giving people cash as opposed to trying to make sure they're paid properly. But that brings me to my other fear and something that I think he's actually right on the money on, that part of the reason he wants to do that dividend, whether one agrees with it or not, is that the more labor costs and the more advanced our technology has become, the more companies are moving towards automation. And whether it's machines that flip burgers automatically or make fries or or self-checkouts at your grocery store or your your um, hardware store, wherever it might be. We're seeing more and more that companies can go and find other ways to accomplish something rather than paying people more. So I, I think the challenge, and this is sort of my final critique of, of the minimum wage being increased, I think we're in a moment where our economy is in such a complex state that I'm not sure anything as blunt as simply pushing the, the wage up is going to actually accomplish an increase in human dignity. I think what it might accomplish, if anything, is increased prices, which means it's not really a wage increase. If you can't buy more milk and bread and eggs uh, and bring them home, whether your, your, your check has an extra zero on the end of it or not, it doesn't matter. Ask the people in Venezuela who have you know absolutely rampant inflation right now. It doesn't matter how big the number is. It matters how much you can buy with it. There's a big problem here, and we need to figure it out. I, I just wonder if this is really just a is the way to do it or if it's just a blunt instrument that's going to disappoint? Well, I would say, uh, and here's where we might agree and disagree. I would say that to automate uh, to the detriment of people is not a morally neutral choice. But then to your point, we have to deal with where we are, not where we ought to be. Um, but yeah, there will be automation uh, from some of the companies in response. But again, uh, what should they do? I, I, I agree about inflation. Um, let's not have inflation if we can avoid it. But I would I would argue for and say, look, let's improve the relations between capital and labor. Let's not keep rewarding what I would regard as sort of a wage slavery economy. Um, and, and the gig economy, listen, the gig economy threatens to be that for a lot of people, although it provides freedom. You can work when you want to. You can't necessarily set set those wages. So you've got to drive, you know, if you're doing Lyft or Uber or something, you've got to drive crazy amounts and, and crazy times to make that work. And you might not be able to make that work as a career. I think you raise a good point. This is where I think part of it for me, and people might say, might say, well, you're a Christian pastor. How can you not want people to be paid more? And I do. I would love it if everyone could be paid a lot more. To me, this is an opportunity for the church. 
uh, because there are an awful lot of businesses, small and large, that are run by Christians. And one of the things that we ought to do, and I think this is where it really should start, Christians who employ people should seek to pay in as much as possible a just wage. And and I think maybe it's not a just wage, but we've certainly seen companies like Chick-fil-A gain a reputation for at least being kind to their employees or Hobby Lobby. Both of those companies have at least for the kind of work they're hiring people for, paid more than the the going market for years. And uh, I I think ideally that should be the standard with Christians. Just like in everything, rather than trying to get the government to fix it, whatever the government's going to do, no matter if it's a democratic policy or republican policy, it's going to fall short of where Christ calls us. I think it's a great opportunity for us to lead as the church. If we want to show people the light of Christ, one way to do it is say, We feel that human dignity is so important that we are willing to have fewer profits to ensure that those who work for us are able to survive and and thrive. And um, if we did that more, if every Christian who had the position to do that did that, it would be a huge testimony to our society. I'm going to tell you what, I don't necessarily disagree with any of that that you just said, but we're just going to announce right here and now we're going to do part two on this discussion for next time. That sounds great. We will come back to it then. We do need to move on. So let's get going. We've been talking about how we can have an improved testimony. And and one of the best ways we can do that, we're talking, Jason, you and I in, in our men's Bible study tonight about how the more we're in God's word, the more we speak it, even when we don't know that we're citing a particular verse. It's just immersed in us. We should be marinating in God's Word. And I love faithtree.com grow because it's intended to help us to do that. It gathers great messages, short devotionals, full-length sermons, and a mix in between along with written reflections on faith and, of course, easy access to the latest Zippy the Wonder Snail in one place so that if you're just looking and you want to type in a scripture passage and see some some faithful preaching on it, if you want to dig deeply into just some scriptural encouragement for the week, you don't have a particular passage in mind, whatever you'd like to do, you can do it at faithtree.com slash grow. Speaking of being in God's word, comrade, we thought we'd spend a little time in John chapter two, didn't we? Yeah, that's right. One of the one of the notable passages, the first miracle uh, that Jesus performs in his his earthly ministry. So it starts off with the the miracle of turning the water into wine, uh, and then the second part of the discussion in that chapter is the cleansing of the temple. And one thing that is really interesting to me about that cleansing of the temple is that. The cleansing of the temple is something that a priest would do to prepare to offer a sacrifice. So um, Jesus cleanses the temple, but in the course of that discussion, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. We're supposed to figure out, oh, he is the temple. The temple is his body. And John tells us that. Um, And what's so amazing is he kind of, when he does the miracle at Cana, he kind of says, uh, he says to his mother, Woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. And you're thinking, well, is he rebuking his mother? Well, maybe on the surface it looks like that, but no. Um, In the same way that the woman's disobedience in Genesis brought us death, then in like manner, the participation of the holy woman, Mary, uh, her obedience and her uh, turning her son toward toward the kingdom uh, opens us up to receive 
what Jesus would have for us, which was to receive him, to receive forgiveness of sins through him. And he's t- when he says, my time is not yet come, what he's talking about is when it does come at the end of all things, then it will be a wedding feast, uh, much greater than this wedding feast. So it's not a surprise, in other words, that this first miracle is at a wedding because he wants to use that imagery of a wedding feast to describe the day of the Lord between God and his people. So he actually wants to do uh, what his mother asks him to do. And as he does that, I said before, it kind of starts the clock on the opposition to Jesus. Uh, and he knows that. And so maybe that was part of his hesitation is, I don't know if it's time for the enemies to get going, but he does it. And then he knows from that point forward, he's going to be ministering in the shadow of the cross. But that first miracle is a miracle of abundance, is a symbol of God's mercy and generosity, and how much more uh, mercy and generosity could God show us than to give us his own son so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be at peace with God and enjoy him forever in heaven. Encouraging to see that from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, um, he's ministering in the shadow of the cross and that the goodness of the cross will come to us through our faith in Jesus. Yeah, I think that's a great point that you make that that Jesus is going to use repeatedly wedding metaphors for for his ultimate coming. And then we see that fleshed out in Revelation as Revelation wraps up after all the intensity of it and, and the destruction and the fear and the persecution and so on. It brings the bride of Christ, the church, into a wedding feast in God's presence. Yes. I often think about that when we when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that here we are, we're invited to this table, and it's a foretaste of what's to come, because here we are coming in the presence of our God, t- taking a meal with him and with fellow believers, and yet how much better is it going to be when we're in the new heavens and new earth, and God is wiping away our tears, and we're dining with him. I mean, it's inconceivably great. And I love how you point out then that you have that bookend at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus that gives another foretaste of that. And it's not just about making sure there's there's enough adult beverages at the wedding. It's about so much more than that. That's right. And and that, again, that, that wine and abundance of food has always been a symbol for God's people, especially in the Old Testament, of God's generosity. So, and, and for us in the Lord's Supper, that's something, that's something that we continue to hope for since we're waiting for Christ to return. But it's also something that we realize now. It's our hope for now. Because, you know, like he says in John 6, um, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life in me. I'm in him and he is in me. Uh, That's a bit of a paraphrase there. But when we're hoping in Christ and we're uh, feasting on his body and blood, then we are, we're hoping for the kingdom and we're realizing part of the kingdom now. So lots of connections there. Again, almost on every page of the scriptures, we see God's generosity to us. um, And we can experience that now in our lives, as well as hope for it in the future. So thanks for letting me talk about that. And you always do a good job, Pastor Tim, with that as well. Thank you, uh, Comrade Jason. Uh, You always provide great insight into scripture, and I'm, I'm glad we get to discuss it together. I hope that was an encouraging note for us to end on for our listeners, because what could be better than to think about God's generosity, God's 
loving care for us. That is something that we always want to come back to, even when we're talking about technology or contentious political debates or, or music or whatever we might do. Because in all those things, we're really discussing the, the gifts God's given us, the intellect that he's given people to make things, uh, the artistic gifts, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, all of it is a demonstration of God's generosity. And what a wonderful thing it is that he loves us as he does, and he, he provides that. Unfortunately, despite the generosity of God's provision, the generosity of the time for the podcast has come to an end. It's time to wrap up another episode of Zippy the Wonder Snail. We would love it if you would follow us on your favorite podcasting app, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Yes, I know we, we beat up Google earlier, but if you're using Google, go over there. Wherever you happen to be, follow us. Visit us on the web, zippythewondersnail.com. Share us with your friends. We'd always also love to hear from you if you have any comments about the program. And until next time, Jason, it's always a joy. Thanks for co-hosting and and helping me to think great thoughts about Scripture. I, I really appreciate your insights on that. and the joy of the conversation. Thanks a lot, Tim. And thank you to all of you listening. We are so glad that you give us your time and share in this conversation with us. We will see you next time.